We'll hear argument next in 93-140. Spectators are admonished the court remains in session. Save your talking till you get outside the courtroom. We'll hear argument next in number 93-144, Department of Revenue of Montana versus Kurth Ranch. You're admonished not to talk while the court is in session. Uh, Mr. Van Tricht. Mr. Chief Justice, and if it please the court. Counsel, before you uh, get underway, straighten me out on a fact or two. Does Montana have an income tax? Yes, Your Honor, it does. Was this income subjected to that tax as well as to the marijuana tax? I do not know, Your Honor. I, I was not privy to the income tax uh, uh, collection of Montana. So you don't know whether it was doubly taxed? We, we do not know, no. I do not know. Is that hard to find out? Um, in fact, it is because under Montana law, um, I can only have access to Montana income tax records if I am prosecuting an income tax case. We have a very strict confidentiality provision which basically says that I cannot go down and out of curiosity or even in conjunction with another case look at the income tax returns. It's similar to the federal law where we have a firewall to protect the confidentiality of the income tax returns. Well, I'll ask opposing counsel. Could I ask you a slightly different question, uh, following up on Justice Blackman? Would, uh, under the Montana income tax law, would it be appropriate for this taxpayer to pay an in, uh, file income tax return and pay the tax, whether he did it or not? It, what is, he, is he subject to the law? Uh, under the Montana income tax law, uh, the, the curse, the family, or the individual members of the family would be subject to income tax on the income earned from mar growing marijuana. Even if it was illegal income? It was Even if it was legal income. It's identical to federal law. Before you say good morning and begin your argument, I'll have one more question. Sure. Uh, would there be a, a violation, a criminal violation, for failure to pay the, uh, the tax that's involved here? This tax? Yes. Um, is there a separate crime for the failure to pay this tax? There is a criminal provision in the code. There is, is reference in the code a criminal provision, yes. So there could have been a criminal prosecution here for failure to pay the tax? It, under my understanding of the Montana interpretation of double jeopardy, I don't think, under the state rule, I don't think that would be possible. Thank you. Would not be possible? As I understand Montana's Supreme Court's interpretation of, the, of our double constitutional double jeopardy provisions in the Montana Constitution, I don't think it would be possible, but I am not sure, Your Honor. So there's no sanction for failing to pay this tax? It's just a sort, of a, sort of a voluntary good faith tax? Well, Your Honor, this from brings people up... people who've been growing marijuana, you, you sort of trust them to come up with it. You, you, well, Your Honor, this brings up one point. Um, under this Court's prior decisions in Larry Case and, and Machete, um, it is, we cannot really compel the filing of a tax return without running, potentially running a file of self-incrimination. But you can put them in jail if they don't. I mean... Oh, we can only actually enforce it if... We can only actually bring an enforcement action if there's not a, a, a payment of the, of the tax assessment. 
Your Honor, uh, Montana has a tax of $100 an ounce on marijuana. The tax assessment before this court is $181,000 because the Kurth family had possessed 1,800 1, ounces of marijuana. The issue before the court is rather quite simple. Is the tax a tax or a penalty, and, is this, and does this particular tax assessment violate the Kurth's rights under the double jeopardy provision of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, the lower federal courts held that the tax was a penalty and that this assessment did violate the double jeopardy provisions of the Fifth Amendment. This decision stands in contrast and in conflict to a prior Montana Supreme Court decision that, th that held that this tax was not a penalty and therefore could not violate the double jeopardy provisions. Montana's the federal, lower federal courts based their decision on this court's decision in United States versus Halper. Mo Montana's basic pos position is that the Halper decision does not apply because this tax is a true tax and not a penalty. And we believe it's a true tax based upon two factors. One, the legislature intended to create a tax, and two, this court's past decisions on similar tax upheld federal taxes of a similar nature. Now, because I think this is a matter of Montana procedure, why wasn't this tax made part of the plea and sentencing proceeding, the, and the criminal um, proceedings against the Kirk family? By the, by the time the, the assessment procedures had not been completed, by the time there was the criminal sentencing proceedings, that there was a contest. The Kirk there was an initial tax assessment. The curse contested that assessment, and administrative proceedings were beginning began before the Department of Revenue, which would have resulted in a final decision. That those this, that process was never completed. The curse filed bankruptcy, and the Montana Montana Department of Revenue filed a, a proof of claim and a uh, motion for relief from the automatic stay. Um, that was denied, and then we went into the adversary proceedings. So by the time, by the, time um, the bankruptcy court issued its um, decision upon the, last, uh, on the assessment itself, uh, Richard Kurth was already out of jail. So there was no way to merge the two, if, 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 it, if it were desired. It sounds from what you described that it, then it, is, it would not be the common pattern to have the two merged. In my experience, they have never been merged. If they were merged, you wouldn't have a problem, I assume. Um, well, actually, merger would create a great deal of problems because we're talking about an apples and oranges proceeding. The criminal proceedings have a much different um, procedural process. No, but you wouldn't have this problem. Yes, we wouldn't have this problem. Mm -hmm but we would have a great deal more problems. Well, you, this, this uh, was settled by plea, wasn't it? There was no trial. Yes, Your Honor, it was. So you could have, if you had, had the two together, you could have negotiated both at the same time. and have them. You, you wouldn't, ha I don't understand what the impediments would be if you didn't, if you, you were dealing by plea rather than trial. Well, the impediment in this case was the fact that we hadn't completed our assessment procedure. We didn't, we hadn't, the department itself had an initial assessment 
and then the proceedings would have gone on through, a, through an adversary proceedings before a hearing officer department, which would have resulted in the final assessment. So we really didn't, the department really hadn't nailed down the final assessment on this particular tax at that time. Mr. Van Trick, if the legislature in Montana had passed uh, its law saying that anyone found in possession of marijuana, that there will be a civil sanction imposed of $100 an ounce. Uh, do you think then we would be required to look at uh, the helper decision to determine its validity? Yes, Your Honor. Because do you think it makes any difference that precisely the same thing is done, only it's called a tax? Yes, I do, Your Honor, because there's a, different, there's a different intent by the legislature. In one action, they're intending to create a tax, and another act, they're in, intending to create a penalty. Or well, I don't sanction. see how the change of a word could could alter the analysis. I, I believe it... Calling it a sanction or a tax. I believe it does in this case, Your Honor, because of this court's past decisions which have held similar and, or, or nearly identical federal taxes. And, do you think we could ever uh, view a tax as a sanction? Yes, Your Honor. So and it isn't just the use of the word? No, Your Honor. It's, it's the structure, the, the entire... Um, a statute itself that the court has to analyze in the determination of whether it is a tax or a sanction. And in this, and the court also has to look at past, its past decisions on similar federal taxes in that analysis. Why doesn't the, the reference to structure go against you? Isn't it a very odd structure for a supposed tax to have two different valuation provisions and say we'll pick the one that uh, brings in the most? That's not the usual structure for it. Um, Your Honor, it's, 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 um, it's not the normal structure, but there's at least one federal tax that has the same structure, and that's the tax on uh, small cigars, which is 12.5% or $30 per thousand cigars, so, whichever is greater. Is it? So, uh, so, so there, it is, it is a, not a normal, but it is not an unusual. It has been done in the past. Mr. Van Tricht, is, is, is it uh, uh, one or the other? It, it can't be a little bit of both? I mean, you say it, it, we have to decide whether it's a tax or a punishment. What if it's a, if it's a tax and, and also a punishment? Who wins? Well, Your Honor... Being a punishment exclude its being a tax, or it being a tax exclude its being a punishment? For, for the purposes of, of analy analyzing under Halper... Um, it, it makes a difference, Your Honor, because we're dealing about the Halper decision, and Halper was talking about penalties and not taxes. But Halper also said it was a very narrowly confined decision. Yes, Your Honor. So why, why, why don't you uh, take the position that even though there may be some uh, sanction or penal effect, if, there's, if it's also arguably a tax, you win? Well, Your Honor... This court has often recognized that, that a tax has both regulatory and, and, and effects and not sort of effects other than it's just its purely revenue-raising effect. And so there are certain aspects in a tax which to some people may, may, may seem non-tax, like, for example, a high tax on, on uh, alcohol may have uh, uh, the purpose of, of discouraging alcoholic consumption. But I don't think that 
that, that, that is a collateral issue which does not change the basic intent of, the, of the Congress or the legislature to enact the revenue-raising measure. May I ask another question about the way this tax works? Uh, what, what is the taxable, taxable event? Is there an assessment date, a particular date when, they, when you do it, or is that always triggered to the criminal proceeding? Your, Your Honor, the taxable, the, the, the ta taxable event is the coming into possession of the marijuana. The coming into possession of yes. marijuana? And is he allowed to retain possession of marijuana, or does the state take possession of it when it finds it? Well, if the state became aware of, of the possession, then, oh. then it's a contraband and it would be seized unless there was some... He couldn't, obviously couldn't tax it without being aware of it, so I suppose that as soon as it has the right to tax, it also has the right to seize it. And then is it on... Is it being taxed on his prior possession, or is it taxing on something that he no longer owns? It's a little bit unusual to be taxing some, uh, an ad valorem property tax on something that the person is not permitted to own. Well, Your Honor, Montana fully recognized this is an illegal activity that it's taxing. And, and, and the statute structure fully recognizes that. And the, and the rules recognize but that. the tax on the prior, the fact that he previously owned the, the marijuana. Because at the time you levy it, you already have the marijuana, I gather. Yes, yes. It, it, yes. So you're, he's being taxed for, because of the fact that he previously had in his possession marijuana. Yes, Your Honor. And uh, I see. How do you apply a, uh, how uh, in theory at least, should, should you apply a possession tax on something which is growing when the tax is not keyed to a given date. I mean, every time his plant comes up with a few new shoots, uh, should, in theory, should he file a tax return? Well, Your Honor, um, if, if he had a plant and grew to a certain, you know, a pound, he would owe a tax. If he added another pound, he would owe a tax on so the additional So the taxable pound. event is the, is the accretion of a pound of weight to his agricultural product. We tax the possession once, and, 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 it's, and each, each new possession of a different amount of marijuana, uh, or new, new marijuana, is, is the taxable event. But if there, there's no ta once the tax is due on the old, mar old marijuana, there's no additional tax on that marijuana. So, so in theory, literally every time a new pound uh, uh, is added by, by nature's processes, he, he would taxable on that. Could yes, the state generate additional revenue by allowing it to allowing him to retain possession for a while under supervision so that he wouldn't dispose of it and then increase the taxable corpus? In that event, the state would get more additional revenue, Your Honor. Strange tax. Some really nice questions here. I mean, what if the plant uh, gets sick and it, it, it dies down a little bit and then it, then it grows back up? Is that the original pound or is that a new pound? I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, Your Honor, this brings... I don't have to administer this tax, Mr. <laughs> Your, Your Honor, this brings up one point. Um, we tax the dried weight of the marijuana at this point. We, have, we had an extended bit of litigation upon whether we were taxing the wet or the dry weight of marijuana, and we tax the dry weight. But this, there's one portion of this, with what you call stake, where it's at 800% the tax, is, that, is it not? There was a disparity between the rate applicable to the marijuana and the rate applicable to the shake. Is that not so? Your Honor, the curse for producing two... They had, they had 1,800 ounces of marijuana. 
Of that 200 ounces were what's called bud marijuana, which was sold at wholesale at $1,800 a pound. The remainder, remainder, uh, and it, it was sold in smaller retail quantities, and that's in retail, uh, retail quantities, a quarter ounce. It would go anywhere from 200 to 400 dollars an ounce in small quantities. The remainder, the 1600 ounce, remaining 1600 ounces was shake, and that's the stems and the leaves from the marijuana plant. At wholesale, that shake sold for 200 dollars a, a pound. At retail, it sold for 250 to 500 dollars a pound. And if it was if it was sold in smaller quantities, it was like a quarter ounce in quarter ounce quantities, it would sell anywhere from 60 to 120 dollars an ounce. But what was the tax on that uh, 200 to 500 dollars a pound? <laughs> the, the tax the tax on the shake was 100 dollars an ounce. The tax on on the uh, the stems and leaves was 100 dollars an ounce. And the and the value of it that was how much an ounce? The value of that, the value, the value of marijuana is dependent upon what is. is I thought there was a separate value. They were two separate commodities. The shake sold for some whatever oil, mm-hmm. it eventually could make, and the other sold as marijuana. Is that wrong? Well, both of them are. Both the shake and the marijuana bud are marijuana. Both the shake and the marijuana bud were being were being sold in. Shoto County. But for different purposes, and one was more expensive than the other. Well, shake of the quality that the, that we have here were being sold for the purposes of making marijuana cigarettes and smoking, in addition to making marijuana oil. The Curse didn't sell shake, but shake of that of the similar quantity that the Curse possessed was being sold in Montana at that time, in in quarter ounces and. Ounces and, and pound quantities. I'm just trying to, to uh, get a, an understanding of what was the tax on that commodity in relation to the value of that commodity, the market value of it. The tax on that commodity, if, if take, taking the lowest price, would be eight times the value. If you, if you, if you tax was eight times the value. Yes. If you, if you, if you, if you determine the value at another. And that's a, a tax. It's eight times the value. I'm, I'm heard that the power to tax is the power to destroy. It seems that would clearly apply to something eight times the value. But remember, Your Honor, we're, we're taxing the entire, all marijuana. As, as in any circumstances, you're going to have, uh, if you tax any type of, of uh, product, you're going to have low-value products and high-value products and, and and all the way down the stream, the uh, I thought there's only two that were at issue here: the marijuana that was, um, and the, and the shake. Yeah, that's the only rate issue. applicable to each. What was the rate applicable to the to the to the marijuana? What well, was the tax? The tax is a hundred dollars an ounce applicable to marijuana, whether it's marijuana bud. Or shake. Yes, but the but the marijuana bud is is much more expensive commodity, isn't it? Considerably more expensive, Your Honor. And what is the ratio of tax to value in the case of marijuana bud? Tax to marijuana bud, the 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 rate the in all instances the tax is less than the value. It starts the value starts at a minimum by eighteen hundred dollars a pound and then goes up, mm-hmm. and it could go up. Considerably, as I, I said, the, the record shows values in, uh, in uh, up to my $400 an ounce. 
I assume that you don't collect this tax on every piece of uh, on on the on the usual. I assume there's more evasion of this tax than there is of most taxes in your state, isn't there? Yes, Your Honor. So uh, to uh, to get the same uh, 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 net tax on all the marijuana, you uh, eight times of the ones you catch probably isn't uh, isn't so outrageous, is it? Your Honor, in this particular instance, the Kurds were engaged in growing marijuana since. Uh, January of 1986. Right. The only tax they are now being assessed with is the, ta is the amount they had in October of you 1986. You have to catch him with, so he's probably paying a very, very modest, reasonable tax upon his total uh, marijuana output. Yes, Your Honor. Thank the court. Thank you, Mr. Van Trick. Mr. Feldman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Halper against the United States, this Court extended the Double Jeopardy Clause for the first time to civil measures. But the Court made clear that it is not the case that any civil obligation, including fines, money damages, attorney's fees, court costs, all of which can carry the sting of punishment, as the Court recognized from the standpoint of the defendant, the Court made clear that it is not the case that any of those things are punishments for purposes of the Double Jeopardy Clause. Rather, it's only when a civil measure cannot be explained in terms of a non-penal purpose, it is only in that case that it should be seen or can be seen as punishment for purposes of the Double Jeopardy Clause. So you think it can be mixed? Can it be a tax and a punishment both? And in, in that case, uh, what? The tax prevails? Yes, I do. I think that the question that the Court asked in Halper is quite clear. There was a civil penalty that was imposed in that case. The court said it was, a, it was labeled a penalty. I think there was very little question that one of the things the legislature had in mind was penalizing the people who had submitted the false claims. But the court said insofar as it can be explained in terms of a compensatory purpose, we're, that doesn't raise a double jeopardy uh, problem. And in fact, I believe the case was remanded to the district court for a determination of whether it could be explained in terms of a compensatory purpose. Well, but that, but that means that if there is any to the contrary-wise, to the extent that there is any penal purpose, it is invalid. No, I don't. It must be totally uh, non-penal. I don't believe. I don't believe if the, what the court said several times in the course of the Halper opinion was if it bore a rational relationship to a non-penal purpose, then it is not a penalty, and that relates to, uh, or it's not a penalty for double jeopardy purposes. That relates to, I think, the Chief Justice's uh, uh, point that, it, uh, that he was making this question before. That so that means that in this case, if they label it a penalty, your case would be just as strong. It wouldn't really make any difference whether they call it a tax or a penalty. I think, the I think that there wouldn't be, well, I think this would be the difference. When you get to the question of what is the non-penal purpose that's served, they are different, generally speaking, with, res with respect to civil penalties, which is what was at issue in Halper, and with respect to taxes. The purpose of a civil penalty, one of the purposes of a civil penalty, is compensating the government for costs that it imposes when the activity is uh, carried out. That's not generally the purpose of a tax. In fact, if taxes were measured by whether they compensate the government for particular, uh, uh, for particular costs that the taxpayer imposes on the government or particular benefits that the taxpayer receives from the government, if taxes were imposed on that basis, they all would be seen to be penalties because almost none of them can be justified uh, like that. The question with the tax is, does it have a revenue-raising purpose? The state of Montana looked around, and as it said in, its, in the preamble to the statute here and in entrusting its collection to the Department of uh, Taxation and numerous other incidents of this tax, they saw an economic activity being carried on within the state. 
they thought that that activity, although it was illegal, that they should be permitted to tax that in the same way as the state of Montana and other governments commonly tax other similar items. The example we give in our brief Do you think it would be constitutional to pass a statute that says that everybody is convicted of a felony shall, in addition to whatever punishment the judge imposes, one year after his conviction pay a tax of $1,000? No, I don't think that. Uh, well, I think it would... It would be constitutional for uh, uh, that. Would be a, that, I think that in that case, it would be likely that you would see that as a criminal penalty. Because, I don't it's, think it's because the class of persons who are subject to the tax is limited to those who have already been convicted of a crime. But isn't that precisely the kind of class we have here? I think that the lesson of Halper was the question that's asked, and the reason why Halper emphasized that it was a it was an unusual case and it was a, it was a rare case was the, the the analysis turns on the purpose. That's underlying the statute. Well, the purpose really here was raising you revenue. Do think the state can constitutionally tax a class of taxpayers, which is defined by the fact that they have all been convicted of a particular crime, without running into some kind of double jeopardy problem? I think that you. Have, I think the question is looking at the purpose in each case. I think where yeah. where the tax. Well, well, I'll, I'll, I'll they, do the want, they do it because they want to raise money, and they think this is an easily defined class. We get a thousand dollars a head out of every burglar. We get that many. Th- there are a lot of burglars around, so we'll raise a lot of money. I think where it's tied to criminal tax, they're all bad actors. Nobody's going to complain about that kind we of. We want to tax. discourage burglary. I, I think where it's tied to criminal conviction, that it would be so close, and this, this would is, is really related to maybe more the Austin case than the Halper case. It's so close to what historically has been seen as a criminal punishment. I think it would be very difficult well, for any state to pay this marijuana tax except people who are convicted of possession of marijuana. No, that's not true. The state, the state, in the first place, the state Supreme Court specifically said that a conviction is not required for, uh, for payment of this As tax. As a practical matter, do they find people who are growing marijuana and they don't convict them of the crime? I don't know. There may be, it may be the case that there are people they find growing marijuana and for one reason or another they don't think uh, ought to be prosecuted or they don't have resources for prosecuting. I don't really know the decisions the state of Montana makes. As a matter of fact, it's had very little opportunity to put this tax into effect because I, I understand that once the bankruptcy court came out with its decision in this case, it stopped trying to enforce it. But in any event, I, I think that the crucial point is that the state, uh, the state entrusted its collection to the Department of Revenue, earmarked its proceeds for the kinds of purposes uh, that tax revenues are ordinarily used in Montana. Um, and you could always do that with my burglary tax, too. You do all those things. Right. As I said, I think in that case where it would be specifically tied to criminal conviction, I think a state would have a very hard time getting out from under the historical understanding of that kind of thing as punishment. But this court has consistently recognized that taxes are not ordinarily seen as punishment. There's no general historical record that they are. And the taxes on illegal activities are permissible. Just as someone selling, as, as we say in our brief, just as someone selling cigarettes in Montana is subject to paying a state tax, so in the same way somebody selling an illegal substance the state of Montana looked around and saw that there were people who were gaining substantial economic wealth within the state, that it was an industry that was carried on in the state, and that they, too, should shoulder the burdens uh, of paying state tax. You said in, in your brief to describe what would be permissible, that this has to be the, within the general range of uh, um, in, uh, t- similar taxes. It has to be something that... This is an ordinary kind of tax, and you give the sin tax as an example. How does one know whether the, the rates that are here are within the general range of sin taxes? Actually, um, there, are, there are really two inquiries we suggested in our brief. The first is where it's a tax of general applicability in that it falls on both legal and illegal activities. We don't think there should have to be any further inquiry. I know, but that's not that doesn't issue. apply to this case. The second principle is really kind of a corollary to that, is where it's a, a, a tax that's similar in kind to the kinds of taxes that are ordinarily imposed 
on legal items. It also, that confirms the legislative intent that this is a revenue-raising measure. Um, in this case, uh, under our analysis, uh, the primary commercial product or the primary product that they're talking about is the buds. That's what these people were really selling. The tax was at an 80% rate. That's actually not at all far off from uh, the kinds of taxes that uh, are imposed in some jurisdictions and the federal government may be considering imposing on cigarettes. Um, and especially when you keep in mind the uh, court statement in Halper that all you really need is a rational relation uh, to a, to a uh, non-penal purpose. It doesn't have to exactly, you don't, you don't require a court to kind of look at it penny by penny in or one. In terms of the total amount that we're dealing with here, the 80% rate was on how much and the, the higher rate was on how much? Well, I, I believe in this particular case the 80% rate was on uh, 200 or 250 ounces. And the, and the higher rate was on, the eight times was on much more, wasn't it? That's correct. But I, I, I view that, or we view that as an artifact of the fact that this other product was simply an extremely low-grade, uh, hardly viable commercial product and got swept within uh, the minimum provision of the tax. The crucial, and the record I think is clear on this, that what they were selling was marijuana buds, and it was that commercial activity that the state of Montana chose to tax. Now, there are mechanisms that the state... Uh, adopted. Well, wouldn't one say that to the extent that the product was not the buds but the shake, that it wasn't, that that rate was not within the general range of such taxes? I think if you saw the main focus of the tax as that, I think that would be a high rate. I, I haven't looked around to see whether there are other taxes that one might compare that with. I, I think that, that, well, you did say that in, is much in your brief that you would look to see whether it was in, within the general range. So, and here we go from a range of of 80% to 800%. Right. If that's the problem, as I said, I, I would look at that as kind of an artifact of the fact that, that, the commercial, that there's a commercial product that they're taxing and this other extremely low quality, uh, barely uh, low value product gets swept within it. If that's the problem with this tax, uh, uh, if the court looked at it differently, uh, that might uh, suggest that the state couldn't tax the, the low quality uh, marijuana product quite the same way, but I think the crucial point in the case uh, is, is that the buds were the commercial product that the state was trying to tax. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Uh, Mr. Getz, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, uh, first I would like to answer uh, Justice Blackman's question. The answer is that the income of Richard and Judith Kurth was taxed as income tax. Uh, the income received by the Halleys and the younger Kurth from the operation, that is, their income as employees, was, was taxed and paid by them. Um, moving to um, the tax as it operates in, this, in, in the state of Montana, uh, well, before I do that, one question posed by Justice Scalia, I think, uh, merits an answer from our perspective, and that is, uh, can a tax be called a tax and serve a dual function? And if so, what is the consequence? Well, I think both Halper and Austin were quite clear on that point. My position is you can call something a tax, it can raise revenue, and therefore it can be a tax, and it can also punish. And it can be punishment for the purpose of the double jeopardy clause. And Austin said precisely on that dual purpose point, fundamentally, even assuming that the statutes in question there serve some remedial purpose. The government's argument must fail. A civil sanction, and they're quoting now from Halper, 
a civil sanction that cannot be fairly said solely to serve a remedial purpose, but rather can only be explained as also serving either retribution or deterrent purposes, is punishment. Because if we don't take that position, then we've put ourselves right back in the, in the old problem of having to, uh, uh, having to define the, the, the principal character of the tax again. I mean, we've got the, we'd have the same problem with the, we had with the regulatory revenue taxes. Different labels, but we'd have the same problem. Well, exactly. And the issue really here, Halper and Austin set aside, is can you have a tax which is, under the guise of a tax, at least in part punishment? Because the double jeopardy clause prohibits multiple punishment. And so if we return to the fundamental question, then we have to ask whether a tax has an aspect of punishment. And if it does, then double jeopardy is implicated. Now, turning to the, the question posed by, by Justice Stevens, uh, the answer is that, and Mr. Van Tricht, I think, made this point, that although this is called a tax on possession, this is contraband, and it would be seized at the time the government realizes that the person possesses or stores. Turning to Justice Ginberg's question on the quantities of the shake, what happened here is they, they weighed approximately 100 pounds of shake, which is a low-grade stems and seeds bags of, of marijuana product. 100 pounds is 1,600 ounces, there were a total of 1,811 ounces in this case, so most of the product was the low-grade shake, approximately 90%. And that is worth, and the record shows, $200. Now, the argument here is, well, at retail, uh, it might be worth more, and there was evidence in the record of if you use something called a marriage in, you can process it to get some of the higher-quality marijuana out, but, of course, that would reduce the weight. And so... The plain and simple fact is that that was worth $200, and it was taxed at $1,600 a pound. A pound. Counts what? $200 a pound and taxed at $1,600 a pound, eight times its market value. Ninety percent of the product at issue here. Looking at the other aspects of the tax. Uh, and it might help. I've well, how important is that percentage, Mr. Getz? Uh, do, do we apply the same sort of analysis if someone comes in and challenges the cigarette tax to say that the basic product is only worth 25 cents and yet the government has put a tax of $1.50 on it? Well, uh, the problem with the cigarette tax analogy that they try to make is they're mixing up retail. Well, I'm trying to make it. Okay. Well, uh, you, in my view, you can't compare retail sales value with the wholesale value of the product that we have here or which we have in, in tobacco raw product. So, but if, if, the, if the figure got high enough then, if, you know, instead of putting a $1.50 tax on stuff that's worth 25 cents at retail, they put $3 on, then it would bring it into question? It, it might. Well, I think it depends on an analysis at the trial level of elasticity of demand. In other words, if you have a tax that is so great that there is essentially no market for the product, then it seems to me that's an indicator that that's not a true tax. It may indeed be a penalty. 
It may not be dispositive, but it is one of the indicators. So it's enough if the tax has a very substantial deterrent effect to at least turn that factor against its validity as a tax? As, as one of the indicators, yes. And it depends on the facts how dispositive that excessiveness or proportionality might be. Now, when you... Mr. Katz, do, 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 would you have any problem if this tax uh, had been imposed in the same proceeding as uh, uh, a criminal uh, trial for the unlawful possession of marijuana? Halper, I, I think, states explicitly that if you impose the tax uh, at the same proceeding or a civil sanction in Halper's case, mm -hmm. then double jeopardy isn't implicated. I, your question is, would I have a problem? Then, then we trigger the, the uh, Eighth Amendment excessive fines issue, and it, it depends on what this court means by excessive fines. But as far as double jeopardy, the answer is no. Now, looking at the mechanics of this tax, uh, and I've appended the regulations to my brief at the end after page 46, and I think the regulations make it quite clear the nature of this so-called tax. First, if we look at regulation 42.34.101 under definitions, uh, the state defines market value. And market value is the value of the substance at the time of confiscation or report. And the use of the word confiscation, I think, uh, relates to Justice Stevens' question. The answer is, of course, this is contraband, and if it's innocently reported, then it will be confiscated or seized. But more importantly, and, and the theme here is that this truly is not a tax. It's really tied to the criminal process. And if you look down at the next regulation, uh, it talks about the tax return. And the last clause is, this return shall be filed within 72 hours of their arrest. If you look down at number two, then there is a tax assessment within 30 days. Within 30 days of what? Within 30 days of the 72 hours after arrest. If you look down at number three, quote, at the time of arrest, law enforcement personnel shall complete the dangerous drug informational reports, information reports. If you look over in the next page, it talks about the law enforcement officer shall certify and submit the form to the department within 72 hours of the arrest. If you look down at number five, it talks about the form and it talks about information on it, arrest and booking number. And if you look at the next regulation, down under subpart C, it talks, quote, the associated criminal nature of assessments under this act is considered to be cause for emergency issue of a warrant of distraint. Those are the so in fact, no one could be prosecuted for not paying the tax as long as uh, the, the, the return was filed within 72 hours of arrest for the possession. Exactly. Justice Scalia asked the question, well, isn't there an inordinate incidence of evasion of this tax? And I think the answer is quite the contrary, because how do you evade the tax? When is the tax even due? The tax is not due until 30 days after the assessment, or the assessment is due 72 hours after arrest. I think this tax probably has the lowest evasion rate of any tax in the state of Montana. So, uh, it, it does refer to report, and I take it the word report, uh, in, uh, in your view, is the report that's filed by the law enforcement officials in lieu of uh, 
of, of the defendant having done it? Uh, yes, and, and that reminds me of one other point. If you go back to the first page of those uh, regulations, the second regulation, 42.34.102, it talks about a return. But then everything else in the regulation talks about a report. Well, the only evidence we have in this record and the only forms I've seen in connection with the Montana Dangerous Drug Tax are the reports of the law enforcement officers. I don't think the state has a form of a return. Now, they do for income taxes. They do for property taxes, as you might expect. But there is nothing in this record that would constitute a return. So, in fact, this tax is quite clearly implemented uh, through the report of the law enforcement officer triggered upon arrest. Now, other indicators... One, one can accept all of that and still, and still believe that the major purpose of, of this uh, piece of legislation is to raise money. They don't require people to uh, uh, file before their arrest because, uh, because they're worried about the... Uh, uh, the Fifth Amendment uh, uh, problems of that. Uh, they have it at such a high rate because they know that uh, not many of these uh, marijuana growers are caught. Um, and therefore, uh, although they would like to, to uh, um, impose a tax on all the marijuana, it's practically impossible, and therefore they have a very high tax on the portion that they do catch. Uh, all of that is still consistent with essentially a re revenue-raising purpose, isn't it? Uh, well, I'd like to parse out the question first. The words you used are the major portion of the, of the, of the measure is tax-related. And if, if that's... It. Yeah, exclusively. It's okay, exclusive. if it's exclusively, then we avoid that dual problem. All right, Let, let's not get into that problem. Then, going to the record in this case, and... Uh, document of the Department of Revenue I filed last week and asked judicial, that judicial notice be taken of it. If revenue raising is the purpose, and by the way, the Solicitor General argues that the hallmark of a tax is its ability to raise revenue, this tax has raised in six years $30,000 according to that document. Last year it raised zero the year before minus $10, the year before they had a deficit of $29,000, and then some positive sides before. So it, the actual fact is it's not very well calculated and hasn't worked very well to raise revenue. When you say raised, you mean uh, the, 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 the gross uh, receipts from it uh, um, discounted by the cost of enforcing it, or what? I think those were the gross receipts, period. How can they have minus gross receipts? Well, I think they had to pay some back, and I, uh, I know they collected 30000 some in this case uh, that they probably had to take out of one account and put in another, but I'm not sure the, the document refers to 29000 minus or a negative factor, so they may have had another problem. Well, I agree with you. It's a bad tax if the state is paying out money. They're, 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 <laughs> they're, they're, they're doing something tax. wrong. <laughs> Uh, in any event, going to another aspect of your question, that is, perhaps the state, if we really want to speculate, was trying to avoid the Fifth Amendment problem. If, you, if a state really wants to design a tax to make it more of a true tax, it perhaps can do so. 
Without advocating for Minnesota's or Iowa's tax, I'll, I want to talk about several features. I just have to say, I don't see how, by confining the people who have to pay a file a return to those who've been arrested, you've avoided any Fifth Amendment problem. If anything, you've accentuated the Fifth Amendment problem by saying only people under suspicion or uh, for whom this probable cause they're criminals, they're the only ones who have to make any self-incriminating statements. That avoids the Fifth Amendment problem? Well, I don't want to advocate for Justice Scalia, but I think maybe his point was that once the law enforcement officers file the report and the taxpayer may or may not sign, and in this case they declined to sign, maybe his point is they, would they could avoid conceivably the Fifth Amendment problem. But a better way to avoid it if you want to draft a tax, as they did in Minnesota, is allow for the purchase anonymously of tax stamps and to penalize tax officials who make the information available to law enforcement on penalty of misdemeanor criminal charges and dismissal, and further to immunize the use of that information in a criminal process. Now, if you really... Did Minnesota collect any money off that scheme? I don't know what their... Uh, uh, what their, their... Not too many stamps being sold? <laughs> I'm not sure, Your Honor. In any event, if, if we want to talk about the structural component of a, of a measure such as this that might at least come closer to passing constitutional muster, it would be that kind of uh, provision, certainly not the kind as we've seen in Montana uh, that we have here. And furthermore, you've got the incidence of the tax is the greater of. I mean, the state is arguing that this is a proportional excise tax. But I'm not aware of any other tax in Montana that says it will be taxed either at X value or the greater of that or a percentage of market value. So it's not a true excise tax. It's dependent on apportionment. And Didn't we get an example that there was one federal tax that, that has the either or? So it's not, uh, I'm not sure. I think the answer was that it's not common, but it's not extraordinary. I, I don't recall seeing that, Your Honor, but perhaps we did in the reply brief. Uh, proceeding to other aspects of, uh, of this tax uh, that, that I think indicate that uh, it's directly tied, it's not a true revenue-raising matter, it's directly tied to the criminal process, we, we compare it to other taxes. Uh, the double tax question was raised, but... There are no other taxes in Montana that we've been able to locate on growing crops. And you saw in response to a question how difficult it would to assess taxes on growing crop. Indeed, we went through a protracted trial, and the state has now abandoned that issue. There's no other tax on possession. Possession, by the way, is kind of a term of the criminal law usually, but on possession of wheat or grains or vegetables, there's not even a tax on harvested grains in Montana. Instead, the farmers are taxed on the income received, and they're taxed on their property. Which they are likely to report, and, and it seems to me a reasonable judgment by the state that, uh, that marijuana growers are likely not to be reporting the income they're, they're making from growing marijuana, and therefore that crop, unlike the other crops, we will impose a crop tax on. Well, it... it it's a reasonable call. One could argue that that's reasonable, except there is no provision made, as I see it, for reporting this marijuana tax. 
why would one report it when, A, there's no return form produced by the state, and B, it's not due until a specified date, that is arrest, and C, you're self-incriminating yourself, which the state could avoid, but if you report it, then it's then you incriminate yourself. So while that, that argument could be made, I think in the whole range of the, the incident and the structure and application of this tax, it's simply, uh, I don't think, a very persuasive argument, particularly when we return to the fundamental principle we're talking about here, is any aspect of this tax punitive? Because they've already been punished for the same conduct. And because double jeopardy forbids the punishment twice for the same conduct. And here I think it's, just as night follows day, this is a criminal matter. It's located and it's closely associated with the criminal process and clearly punitive. And one other point I'd like to make is that while the state argues that this court has historically given great deference to tax matters, and I think this court generally has. That is not true where the tax measure may run afoul of a fundamental constitutional right. That is, most of their precedent deals with antiquated Tenth Amendment types of challenges or just general amorphous challenges of taxes as penalties. Now here, we have you were referring to those cases where the, the challenge was made that this isn't under the Congress's taxing power and therefore it has to be under some other power and Congress doesn't have that power. Basically, the United States v. Sanchez and the Doremus case and a, a number of those cases. Uh, and here, this court said in a different context uh, in 1975 in, in Austin v. New Hampshire dealing with the uh, a tax of New Hampshire's that fell in a discriminatory way against non-residents. And it was a Privileges and Immunities Clause case. And this court said, our review of tax classifications has generally been concomitantly narrow, therefore to fit the broad discretion vested in the state legislature. But then this court said, when a tax measure is challenged as an undue burden on an activity granted special constitutional recognition, however, the appropriate degree of inquiry is that necessary to protect the competing constitutional value from erosion, implying heightened scrutiny, and the court actually, this court actually said that, saying our prior cases therefore reflect an appropriately heightened concern for the integrity of the Privileges and Immunities Clause by erecting a standard of review substantially more rigorous than that applied to state tax distinctions. But there, there you're talking, Mr. Getz, about uh, tax classifications. Uh, you know, you get various categories taxed at different levels. Uh, and I think that's quite a different type of review than the challenge, is this a tax or is it not a tax? Well, I, I, I agree that that's a different kind of review, but I don't think the question is, is this a tax or is it not a tax? Because I concede that this can be a tax. Indeed, the state says it's a tax, uh, and they call it a tax, and they try to raise money. The question is, notwithstanding the fact that it's a tax, may it also serve the dual purpose of punishment 
And the answer, I think, from the structure of this legislation in Montana is quite clearly it can and it does and it has done so in this case. And therefore, because we're dealing with a fundamental constitutional right, the double jeopardy clause, following the analogy of, of Austin v. New Hampshire, I submit that there has to be a heightened standard of review. And there has to be a fairly probing analysis, as we see under Halper, even, uh, consistent with the principle of humane justice served by the double jeopardy clause. That's my point, not that generally you don't defer to legislative judgment and taxes. I think you defer much less. You have a heightened standard of scrutiny when you have a fundamental constitutional right clashing. And here, quite clearly, well, you do. But m most of the cases in which our uh, 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 relaxed scrutiny, Lenhausen, that, that group of cases, the, the, t the challenge has been under the Equal Protection Clause. And surely the Equal Protection Clause deserves as much constitutional recognition as the Double Jeopardy Clause, doesn't it? Uh, it depends on whether you have a fundamental right or a suspect classification. If you do involve, well, you, well, you yes. Said, you said Equal Protection Clause generally isn't of the same statue or stature in the Constitution as the uh, Double Jeopardy Clause? Well, this Court has held in numerous cases that you apply at least a two-tier standard in equal protection clauses, rational basis or minimal scrutiny in most cases, but where there's a fundamental right or a suspect classification involved, then you apply heightened scrutiny. So I would say double jeopardy is equivalent to the suspect classification uh, fundamental right uh, analysis of equal protection, but not generally so. In other words, I'm not sure you can you can generalize about equal protection because of that two-tier approach that this court has taken. But clearly this court has said in Benton v. Maryland and since that double jeopardy is a fundamental constitutional right, and I think Helper reaffirms that proposition. And so following the Austin Privileges and Immunities Clause analysis, I, I think quite, quite clearly warranted here is a very careful scrutiny of the state tax. Not that it's needed, because I, I, I think you can see, just trying to probe on various aspects of attempting to enforce and impose this Montana tax, that, that it, uh, it doesn't pass even rational basis or minimal scrutiny. Now, the, the state argues in that connection, cases such as the Sanchez case, and I make the very distinction because Sanchez, uh, dealing with the federal marijuana tax, federal marijuana transfer tax, was kind of an amorphous challenge arguing simply that it's a penalty and not a tax. But it didn't involve a double jeopardy issue. Here, of course, we have the clashing double jeopardy value that the court has to preserve. So I think the Sanchez case uh, is justified uh, as a minimal scrutiny kind of a case because it was an amorphous tax case. And in any event, in that case, this court said that the federal tax is punitive or is deterrent in nature, which is the equivalent of punitive. And finally, I'll close by simply pointing out Apart from the... The tax was upheld in Sanchez, was it not? That's right. My point is, you didn't have the countervailing double jeopardy 
uh, clause problem because there was no there was no previous conviction in Sanchez. At least there was none that was raised. There was not a double jeopardy issue raised. Moreover, the court, this court said specifically in Sanchez that the tax is not dependent on criminal prosecution. And here I think we have a great deal of difference. Now, I've cited in a number of places in my uh, brief the numerous uh, cases, including cases of this court and cases of lower federal courts and the state cases, that have basically held what I think is quite obvious, and that, that is these kinds of taxes on dangerous drugs are, the purpose is, as the Utah Supreme Court said in the Sims case, quote, to punish and deter those in possession of illegal drugs. And the Seventh Circuit said years ago about the federal marijuana tax in Tovar v. Durecki, quote, does anyone suppose that the government is trying to raise revenue in either instance? Is it not perfectly plain that the government is trying, what the government is trying to do is take the plaintiff's property and turn him and his family out on the street for not having a license to do something the government did not want him to do? And there are numerous cases from other state jurisdictions to the same point. So I respectfully submit that we have a case here where the individuals have been punished first, then for the same offense the state is trying to invoke a quasi-criminal process to punish them a second time, and the lower courts were quite clearly correct in dismissing because of double jeopardy problems. Thank you, Mr. Goetz. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.